welcome to another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. All right, we've got a jam-packed uh, episode here for you. Um, we're breaking with tradition. We're actually going to talk about... Uh, we've got two featured movies this week, um, both Best Picture nominee, uh, best picture nominees for this year's Oscars, uh, American Hustle and Philomena. In addition to a lot of current events. And there's a lot of current events to talk about. Um, and we're also going to look at one of the uh, the songs up for uh, for best song at the Oscar, uh, because why the hell not? Um, Which song? Well, I looked at the list earlier, and I think the first when you have them listed in alphabetical order, not including "Alone Yet Not Alone," the uh, <laughs> yeah the pulled nominee, uh, it would be "Happy" from "Despicable Me 2. Um, and we had that movie playing at Amy's, uh, for a while. So I think I know which song it is because <laughs> I think I heard it a bunch. Um, but before we get to all that, um, we had, well, last week we talked about want, you know, wanting to talk about some of the things that were sort of going on in the film world. There's this Quentin Tarantino business with his leaked script and, um, and there's this, uh, the, the allegations against Woody Allen are sort of like coming up again. Um, but before we get to any of that, the, the earlier this week, um, we had some sad news I and mean, for us, this was just yesterday, but for you listening, it would have been a, a couple of days ago. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman died and it was, uh, it was sad and, and shocking, I think for most everyone um i mean it's always sad when when you lose a uh a respected artist or someone you know in the public eye like that who's admired by a lot of people um but this is sort of i think it's it's tragic on a number of different levels um first and foremost i mean like he's he wasn't old no. He's like 46 years old. Yeah. Um, and my initial reaction after, after like the, you know, the, the kind of like the shock about like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe that that's happened. Um, is just the realization that we're not going to see any more films with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, and that's, that's a, that's a hard, hard truth to accept, I think. And it makes it frustrating to look back at the past, like, few years, and he was in a lot of movies, but not, I don't know, like, not as many as he should have been in. <laughs> like, I want there to be, like, hundreds of Philip Seymour Hoffman movies. Yeah. Like, but, I mean, what he had, what he, what he does leave behind, his filmography, um, it is, it is full of, of great films. And it blows and away great most other actors. Yeah, other actors who, you know appeared in who have done dozens and dozens and you know in some cases hundreds of movies um he definitely has a uh, a legacy that you can point to as being you know he I mean he holds up against the best um so yeah i mean he's one of the, he, he's one of the only actors that like if i hear that he's going to be in a movie 
like I'm instantly interested in what that movie is. You know what I mean? It kind of gives that movie a little bit of credibility. Exactly. Like, oh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is in that. Like, I, I'm, I'm in. You know, Count I didn't even in. realize until today when I found out he died that he was in the Hunger Games movies. Yeah, I noticed because um, we had the, uh, the the second Hunger Game, the the Catching Fire, the most recent one, playing at Amy's up until last week, and I saw that he was in it, and it made me want to watch those movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anytime I see like, you know, Oh, this movie's in development and you know, they've cast Phil Seymour Hoffman. Like, I, it's always something to look forward to. And, uh, yeah, it really is a shame that it was cut so short. Mm. Um, the other side of this that's that's really tragic is, I mean, he had a family, um, and a lot. Of, uh, I think three young children, um, which that's, I mean, that's really sad. Whenever that happens to anyone, um, but beyond that, just the just how he died, alone, alone, and ultimately succumbing to his uh his own demons which i guess he'd been dealing with for the last uh 20 some odd years and his persona or at least i mean he didn't always play characters like this but um my perception of him was always like this like big cuddly friendly guy who like if i hung out with him i better to be a really cool time yeah totally and, like i feel like there are a lot of people who like when they heard like oh he died alone with his with a needle in his arm they think like oh i if i had known him i could have tried to like help him or something and it's like you can't at a certain point you can't help certain people it's tragic i mean that's the that's the the horror of of drug addiction is that it it can happen to anyone you know um and it doesn't matter like the the addiction takes over I mean, this is coming from two people who have never been addicted to any kind of drug. Um, but, I mean, you could just see how it destroys so many lives. And it doesn't matter that, like, friends and family are telling them, like, you're you're killing yourself. You're, we want to help you. And he had just, apparently he had just come out of rehab. Um, it is a sobering reminder that no one is safe from from hard drugs. I think that's part of the reason why, um, well, when, when any celebrity dies, there's, there's kind of two reactions. There's the one reaction of people who all are, you know, shocked and sad and have nice things to say about, about the person in question. And then there's the cynical side of people who say like, oh, well, this is just another example of our celebrity obsessed culture. Like, why do you even care if you've, you know, this is a person you have no, you've never met them and whatever. Why are we all, uh, acting so personal about That's it? That's ridiculous. Cause it's not like it's a celebrity, like, Oh, this is somebody who E found and put on a reality show. This is somebody who had a very like large talent mm-hmm. that he had shared with the world for like 20 something years. And we wanted more and like, yeah, and he was an inspiration not just to audiences, audience members, but other actors and people who wanted to work with him because he yeah. was so 
so good. And from what I hear, like, because he was just a genuinely good person. Um, but I think like, yeah, I don't think it's fair to kind of make that argument about, um, I don't know, like a cynical argument about like celebrity and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I think it, it, when, when someone dies like, like this, it reminds everyone that the, the people that you see on the screen, the image of the actor, the character, essentially, that you see or that you follow, um, they are a real person and death can happen at any time. Um, not, and if, and if they're not immune to things like substance abuse and, and unfortunate, uh, accidents and, and death and then nobody is. Um, I mean, I guess this, this just, the, the most recently happened with, uh, with Paul Walker. Um, but I had never, I don't think I've even ever seen a movie with him. I saw the first Fast and the Furious when it came out and it didn't make me want to see the other ones. So mm. I didn't really have much experience with him. Yeah. And it, I don't know. It really just kind of, it irks me when people use these kinds of like, I don't know, these, you know, these people who, had, you know, they died and they, their work matters to other people and to use it as just like to try to make some snide remark about like, you know, some bullshit idea about, oh, our society is too obsessed with this stuff. I think it's, I don't know, it, it pisses me off, but I actually haven't seen too much of that with, uh, with this because I think he like Philip Seymour Hoffman was genuinely respected by almost everyone yeah who hated Philip Seymour Hoffman <laughs> yeah like who was ever like oh that would have been a really good movie if it wasn't for that Hoffman guy right. yeah I mean he's the kind of actor that like it doesn't matter like what role you put him in he could he could play anything he could be that lovable big teddy bear that your sort of image of him, but he's played some really nasty villains and he's played some, you know, just like heartbreakingly real portrayals of, of, you know, dark people and, uh, and just very, and he wasn't afraid to just sort of like put himself out there in, even in like unflattering situations or just like, and just show the, the purely human side of, uh, of himself. The first two films that I noticed him in were, uh, like, I saw them around the same time. Uh, they actually came out around the same time, like, 98 and 99, but I didn't see either one until a couple of years later. Um, Flawless and Happiness. And it's, in Flawless, he plays a drag queen who is giving singing lessons to um, um, Robert De Niro, who plays a stroke victim who was a cop. Which already that's kind of weird. That's like a weird like buddy cop type <laughs> yeah. of idea. And like he, but he's so perfect in the role, and he's so believable, and he just commits so perfectly to mm -hmm. it. Like you forget that he's any anyone that you've seen in anything else, because like I watched him in Happiness, and he's like this kind of grubby guy. He's like um, calling this woman up all the time on the phone and saying like, 
you're like, oh, I want to beat the shit out of you and fuck you and stuff and like rape you. And like his fantasy, it seems like is to rape this woman. And uh, like at one point she finally like says, okay, fine, we'll meet and this will happen. And it's like, then they meet and he can't bring himself to do anything. It was all about like the idea of mm-hmm. doing it. And it's so, like, it's such a delicate subject and everything, but he plays it, like, so perfectly where, like, you almost are like, aw, the poor attempted rapist. <laughs> yeah. There. I mean, and that's that's his brilliance. I mean, he's able to, like, be so vulnerable, and but he can play so cold. And, punch drunk love. Yeah, punch he's drunk so love. so threatening. Yeah, yeah, incredibly threatening. Um, he's a villain in uh, Mission Impossible 3, um, and he really is what i i remember seeing it it's been a long time but um he was what was enjoyable about that movie his presence like carried you know carried the the film forward and most recently uh i think the the, the, la- the latest performance i saw from him was the master um the paul thomas anderson film um and i, I love that movie and he is just uh so many facets to that character that he's playing was he in there will be blood um i don't think so i think that's the only one he wasn't in then of all the the paul Paul thomas Thomas anderson Anderson yeah um when i think back at like my favorite roles that he's that he's played my, my mind instantly goes to the work that he did with paul thomas anderson um because in every one of those movies he is just fantastic even in boogie nights which he has a very small role that's the first movie so that I. That's him. the first movie that I remember seeing him in, and it's it's a it's a tiny role. He's not. It doesn't have a lot of screen time. Um, I think it was before he really became like a big star. It was like that was right before he did Happiness, and then he did Flawless, and then like he kind of went on to yeah. do bigger things. Like I'm trying to think of like when everything was. Um, Magnolia must have been around in that time. Yeah, I think that was like 2000. I thought it was 2003. Punch on Glove, I think, it was 2003. Oh. Yeah. Oh, maybe. Oh, maybe Magnolia was 2001. I can't remember. But yeah, but just that little bit of screen time that he has in Boogie Nights, it's uh, he creates this incredibly sympathetic character and a very, very memorable one. Um, and out of a movie that has a huge cast um, and so many great characters. He's one that I that I remember almost most of all. He's definitely up there. He works so well in like ensemble pieces, because hmm. he could just disappear into it, but you'd st- you'd still like know he was. But he was he he was a great supporting actor. Which like in recent years, what that means is like oh, an actor who's not top build. Right. But he was a great supporting actor, and that he actually supported the leads and the other right. actors around him and stuff. Cause like also what's uh state in Maine. He like, technically he's the lead character of the movie, but it's really a, like an ensemble piece, but he's the character that the film uses to like introduce you to the whole like scene and like who all the other characters are. Magnolia, I think was when I really was like, wow. What's even amazing about his his performance in Magnolia is he shares a lot of scenes with Tom Cruise in that movie, who the character he's playing is probably one of his all-time greatest performances ever and Mm -hmm. is so 
over he could have easily just stolen he practically does steal like the movie in a lot of in, whenever he's on screen but he's able to like hold his own against that and uh still is, it pulls out a very very memorable role yeah i think i'd have to say my favorite performances are probably uh yeah him in magnolia and uh and in the master um I haven't. I've never seen Capote. That's another one where he kind of disappears. When when it first starts, you're sitting there like, "Here's another actor doing a Truman Capote impression," and then like, just a few minutes in, you're just watching Truman Capote. Mm. And it's just I don't know. It's just amazing. And he's Philip Seymour Hoffman was a large man. Yeah, he wasn't always fat. Oddly enough, if you if like throughout the years, you know his weight shifted and stuff. Yeah, but like, he was always like big. Yeah, and watching Capote, it's like, how can you be such a great actor that you make yourself small? It's so weird. Just the way he stands and every, like, mm-hmm. there were some like perspective tricks as far as like height goes and stuff, but like he, he didn't lose a ton of weight for the role. He just made himself seem small. It's yeah. amazing. Well, even in um in like Boogie Nights, like he's he was larger than I think like and the, even like his costume kind of accentuated. Like he's wearing like this tiny <laughs> like, like yeah. tight shirt and he's, you know he's got like his gut sort of hanging out. And uh but he, he in my mind like he is very small in that movie as well. Like cuz he's just this uh this mousy kind of kind of guy. And he just shrinks. Yeah, I mean, I can't. I still can't believe that like he's actually gone. Mm. Um, and the, what's crazy is that like, even though he he is gone, there's still I think four movies that will be coming out. <laughs> uh, four movies that he had basically completed. Two of uh, which are Hunger Games movies. Two of them are Hunger Games. One of which he hadn't completed, I believe. He had seven right? days left of shooting. Um, there were, I guess it's like The Mockingjay. I think it was one book, and they're splitting it in half. Um, I think it's the last book in the series. I'm not sure. I think it was a trilogy. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't sure. But yeah, they're splitting it in half, as they often do, I guess, with the, the final. Twilight, Harry Potter. Yeah, that's the, the new thing. That's the new thing. If only they'd done that in, like, the 70s and 80s when there were all these, like, abridged movies coming out. But anyway, they, they, had shoot, they had shot them both together. His work on the first movie was already done, um, but the second one had, like, seven days left to shoot. Um, and they're going to somehow work around it. Um, but he had shot, well, it, not just shot, but, like, two, two other films that had just gone to Sundance this year and had already they'd mm-hmm. been just picked up for distribution. They were all completed. So those two movies, you know, will be out probably this year. Um, and they're probably going to get wider distribution now because of this. Yeah, I would guess that there'd be a... It's kind of like what happened to um, Parnassus, uh, the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, which was Heath Ledger's final film, um, Terry Gilliam movie that was probably bound for a limited release initially. The and Terry then, Gilliam curse. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the curse struck again and his lead actor was, uh, you know, died in the middle of shooting it. But because of all that sort of hype surrounding, you know, Oh, they're bringing in these other actors to like fill out his, uh, to finish the role. I think that helped sort of, um, Help the movie get gain a, a wider release. 
because there was more interest in it. Um, yeah, I guess he had already he had shot a uh, he was he was preparing a sh- uh, Showtime television show, a series. Um, he shot the pilot, and the pilot was done. And Showtime, I think, had just picked up like ten episodes of it. Um, they hadn't started production on the show yet, but now without their lead actor, I think the show is probably going to be uh, just shit canned altogether. Um, but yeah, um, incredibly sad news, and I, I, I can't believe that. You know, we're all we're all uh, missing out of what was sure to be another few decades of great work that will never come to pass. So Philip Seymour Hoffman will be missed. Uh, All right. Anyway, we've got other current events to talk about. So, okay. Let's open up this can of worms. (laughs) There's a whole can of worms that, um, the media has kind of just recently uh, reopened, I guess, involving um, this Woody Allen uh, scandal that took place back in the early 90s, um, in which there were allegations that he had inappropriately touched or molested um, his his stepdaughter. His adopted daughter. Oh, his, okay, his adopted daughter with uh with Mia Farrow. Um and at the time like he wasn't uh prosecuted. It never came to trial. Never never went even went to trial, okay. And and the testimony well not testimony because it wasn't a trial, but I mean Mia Farrow videotaped the child, um, like describing what happened. And there were many edits in the tape. <clears throat> like, the tape would stop recording and then start up. And so people were looking at it like, we don't know when what happened in between. Like, were you coaching her? Were you making stuff up? Because they were... This happened in the middle of another scandal mm-hmm. where Woody Allen had uh, started dating um, Mia Farrow's um, adopted daughter, Soon Yi. Yeah. Um, who was, I think, like 18 years old at the time? Or? Either. Well, no one knows what year she was born in. Oh, okay. Um, but some sort of bone scan thing has determined that she was born in either 70 or 72 or in between there somewhere. So she was either 19 or 21. And um, the... Um, impression people have of it is that like he had seen this like little girl growing up and everything and like you know he was just kind of like lurking waiting for her to like be legal but really like he didn't really know her that well um, until like because she didn't always live there there was also her adopted father Andre Previn who Mia Farrow had been married to in like the 70s to the early 80s I think um like, she would be with him, she would go off to school and stuff, and Mia Farrow apparently actually, like, said to Woody Allen, like, oh, well, you know, you know, you're a part of my family, basically, even though we're not married, like, I'd really like you to get to know my, my daughter, Suni, better, and kind of encourage them to start hanging out. She didn't realize what it would lead to. Mm. Um, 
So like in the middle of, and then like, so Mia Farrow found nude pictures of Soon Yi. Right. Um, at Woody Allen's apartment. Cause they had separate apartment. They never lived together. Um, and so naturally, you know, she broke up with him because you break up with somebody. If you find new pictures of anybody in their house, let, let alone, alone your, your adopted, adopted daughter. daughter. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Woody and Mia, which is weird to call them that because I don't know that, <laughs> but that Woody and Mia, that's who they are. Yeah. Um, you know, they had one biological child together and they had adopted two children together. Uh, so she had like a country home in Connecticut. You know, they'd go there on weekends and stuff. And like, so Woody Allen went to visit with the children, like during the breakup thing, because he wanted to remain, you know, in their lives. And she wanted to like have him be in the children's lives and stuff too. Cause, and then allegedly it was during this visit mm-hmm. that he took Dylan Farrow to the attic mm-hmm. for a certain amount of minutes and like then later somebody noticed that like oh Dylan you're not wearing your underwear then then it progressed from there and it's hard to say what happened because if anybody was in the attic it was only two people so it's up to those two people and they both have differing uh, ideas of what happened right Dylan was seven She's now, what is her name now? Malone? Or. They all changed their names over the years, and it's very hard to keep track. <laughs> um, shoot. Yeah, I can't remember what, but her, she, what her new name is. Uh, I know that one of the uh, the servants there, I think it was, an, it was either a maid or a nanny, someone said that um, she never saw like would he leave the room for more than like five minutes and i a lot can happen in five minutes i guess but well basically so all this stuff happened 20 years 20 something years ago yeah and it was ultimately decided like all right we don't know what happened and the world basically forgot about it to, to the um, extent that woody and suni after they married were able to adopt two daughters and when you adopt somebody, they do background checks and everything. Mm. Yeah, and they're still together now, right? Yeah, they've been married since, I think, like, 97. Um, so, m- most recently, I think at the uh, at the Golden Globes, Woody Allen was given a... Uh, tribute. A tribute or a Lifetime Achievement Award yeah, or something like that. The, I think it was the Cecil B. DeMille Award. And um, his son posted online... Uh, can't remember the exact phrasing but essentially it was like we shouldn't be giving him an award for you know he's he's a rapist right um and that brought everyone's attention back onto the whole thing and uh and the the victim the the daughter dylan um then made a spoke out i think for the first time since the uh she made a public sort of uh, open letter um, for the first time since the incident happened. Um, and I've read it. Did you read it? Yeah. Um, the one that starts with, like, what's your Woody Allen right, well, yeah, exactly, film? Yeah. And, then, yeah. Um, and in it, she, like, talks, you know, 
talks about what her memory of the situation was um and then calls out a lot of the uh the people who he's worked with in his films since then she specifically mentions diane keaton because she knew diane keaton when she was a kid um and so she still maintains that this is what happened and i think basically like mia farrow and um her brother uh roman they they're all in and is it that. ronan or roman it, i think it's ron oh it's ronan right okay. yes ronan that's right born satchel they all are are with the uh the anti woody allen i mean he tweeted on um oh, was it father's day i think ronan farrow tweeted something like happy father's day or as we call it in my household happy brother-in-law day or something like that Mm. <laughs> so like yeah, yeah that's he's weird been, well i mean that was like six or almost a year ago i guess but um so anyway um it all basically comes the question that was essentially posed by dylan was how can we as an audience still watch his movies without with with the knowledge of what he allegedly had done um, and this opens up a whole can of worms, which, you know, it has been brought up in the past with, uh, people like Roman Polanski. Um, but that's the, the difference there is Roman Polanski, he did rape a child. Right. He said he raped a child. The child said he raped her. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows what happened. And he can't even come back to the country because if he yeah. does, he'll be arrested. <laughs> he can't enter america i don't think he can enter england or canada i mean he never lived in america anyway he only well i mean he lived briefly he did have that house where his wife was murdered mm-hmm. um but he only ever made i think two hollywood films rosemary's baby and chinatown i think those are the only two films he ever made in america mm. um not that I'm saying, like, he wouldn't want to come visit or something. Like, oh, it doesn't matter anyway. He didn't work here. Like, um, Well, I feel like that's more of a... Like, no, that's true. It is a, it is a different situation. Because yeah. in this Woody Allen thing, I mean... I guess there are, there are enough sort of questions as to... I mean... Her story kept changing. The thing is, is, like, we being outside of the situation, no one will ever know exactly right. what happened. Um. And Dylan, because of her young age at the time, might never know herself. Because people have put forth the thing, well, it could have been a story put in her mind. And if you believe something, if you're made to believe something at seven, mm-hmm. chances are at 27, you'll still believe it. Yeah. It, it gets into some really uh, sticky situation. I mean, it's hard not to agree with with the victim in that case, though. I mean, if they're saying like, yeah, this this happened to me, and I've had to deal with it my entire life for you know if she was the last a twenty years. Yeah, that's um, the problem with that. We don't know if saying. there even is a victim. Yeah. Um. It's uh, it's hard. I mean, I can't really like pick a side necessarily. Um. You know, like a few months before this, there was the whole thing where, um. 
Mia Farrow was saying that her biological child with Woody Allen, um, the Ronin, is, as they now call him, she said, well, he was actually probably Frank Sinatra's Yeah, kid. yeah, I remember that. So it's like... <laughs> um, and there's... I, I, I watched an interview with... Uh, I, th- I think it was like on 2020 or something from back when all this stuff was happening with Woody Allen, and he was just talking about how crazy Mia Farrow was mm. and how, like, she... In his mind, it was like she invented this whole story to basically get revenge on him for the Sweet. relationship that he had with with her adopted daughter. Um, which in and of itself, that's a very strange situation. And uh, that's a pretty nasty thing to do to someone, um, especially your girlfriend. <laughs> or they were married, right? He's married to... Wait, what? Was Woody Allen and Mia Farrow were married? No, he's married to Sun Yi. He was never married to Mia. Oh, okay. So they were... It, I mean... It doesn't matter, like, if she was of age or if she was, you know, a consenting adult or if it was true love or whatever. It still is like, you don't get into a relationship with your girlfriend's daughter. <laughs> and you don't get impregnated by your ex-husband when he's married to somebody else. In, in in regards to her and Frank Sinatra. Oh, right, because of the timing of that. Like, Frank Sinatra, um, I think his widow is still alive. He was married to her at the time. And apparently Mia Farrow has said that, like, oh, well, when Frank and I got divorced, you know, we never really stopped. Hmm. And it's like, well, so you didn't even stop when you were married to Andre Previn, who you stole away from... Like the woman he was married to at the time who died in an insane asylum because she had a nervous breakdown when he left her for you. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm saying nobody's perfect here. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and like Mia Farrow has done wonderful things for like charity organizations. And it's just amazing that she has raised so many kids. Like, I'm not sure how many of them are biologically hers, but she's like adopted a ton mm. like over the years and several of which have had like disabilities and like, I don't want to take anything away from that, but well, and that's, um, and that's kind of like the whole point I think of, of the discussion or at least the discussion that like the audience can rightly have. Cause I don't think like, you know, we can't pass judgment on anyone cause we don't know all the details. It's right. their own personal life. We're not involved in it. the only thing that we can do as audience members is decide, do we, you know, watch the films of Woody Allen or Mia Farrow, or do we not? Does it affect our enjoyment of the work that they've created or does it not? Um, and I mean, it's like, it's, it's not like anything really new has come out aside from the Sinatra thing. Like as far as the child molestation thing, I, I didn't hear any like new. No, it, it's things. basically all just kind of like, um, just reminding everybody, reminding that everyone that this is what might have happened. Right. Like, so it's stuff that I mean, people have been like wrestling with in their heads for years, mm. and like, I don't know. Like personally, I just got to the point where I was like, well, no one ever found any evidence of anything like the doctors looked at the kid 
people interviewed her, people interviewed everybody, there were investigations and everything, and everything seemed fine. So I've just been going under the assumption that, like, it was a big misunderstanding, mm-hmm. and nothing happened. I mean, ultimately, all that we have to work with is, like, what the, you know, it went through the justice system. I guess we just have to rely on that as far as, uh, you know, the truth is concerned. And, like, I don't know. If, I, if I'm able to watch a Roman Polanski film. Mm-hmm. And Rose, I, Rosemary's Baby, for instance. There you go. Um, but let's say, like, one post-1977 okay, when he yeah. raped a child in Jack Nicholson's hot tub. Um, like I can watch The Pianist and I can watch Carnage and like I enjoyed them and I know they were made by a rapist Mm -hmm. but I'm not saying like he's a great guy Mm -hmm. and if something happened like tomorrow and Plansky was like taken away and was serving a jail time like I wouldn't be as upset about it as a lot of other people might be because it's like, well, he did do a crime and he never, his only punishment was like banishment or exile. (laughs) Right. It is a weird, I mean, he should be brought to justice. Um, But the thing about that is the judge raped it up though. Right. Cause the judge told him like, like it was like a plea bargain thing or something. And then they changed their minds. So it's like, well, you didn't, it's like if you had just treated him like any other rapist, Everything would have been fine. He probably would have gone to prison for mm-hmm. however many, I don't know how long, in the late 70s that would have been. Um, but because, for some reason, like, the justice system decided to, like, play with it, then they made him look like a victim, and then he got away. And, like, I don't, I don't know. But the, the Woody Allen thing, it's just, like... No one knows. So it's not like... I'm trying to think of people who've killed people and made movies and stuff. Ooh. Well, the, the guy who directed Clown House, he didn't kill anybody, but he molested um, one of the child actors in Clown House. That and sounds then, like a horrifying experience all around. It is a horror movie about people dressed up like clowns who break into children's houses. <laughs> Um, oh God. And then, like, he did a brief amount of time, and then he got out and he made Powder, and he made the Jeepers Creepers movies, and, like, I don't know what he, what else he's done, but... Um, what about the whole uh, Natalie Wood situation? Do we... Did they find out who killed her? Or how she died? Or no. are we just saying, because we don't know if Christopher Walken's a murderer, or... that? Well, that's what my point was. Okay, was yeah. That, like, there's the questions about how Natalie Wood died. Do you want to go into a little bit of backstory about that whole situation? I don't know much about it. I know she was on a boat with um, Robert Wagner and Christopher Walken, and they came back. She didn't come back, right? Is that all there is, or is there more to that? I think that's... That's that's all anybody knows. I feel like... Is that, like, she apparently fell off the boat and drowned? Um. But there's, yeah, there's that question of, of you know, was was there foul play involved? And there's been a lot of allegations about it. Um, 
but I guess, I don't know, I mean, all you can really do is just, I don't know. Either you watch it and enjoy it or you don't. I mean... Nothing's been proven. Nothing's been... Matthew Broderick killed somebody. Todd Browning killed somebody. Michael Curtiz killed somebody. And Michael Curtiz, years after, he made Casablanca. If he'd gone to jail, maybe we wouldn't have Casablanca. And I'm not saying that that's worth human life. How? What was that situation? Michael Curtiz? Yeah. He was directing a silent film called Noah's Ark. And um, for the flood scene... They didn't really take any safety precautions or anything, and people ended up being drowned. Because they basically just had all these extras, and then so they were it was like, like, here comes the water! It wasn't, they, it wasn't like cold-blooded murder. No. It was just negligence. No, and like Todd Browning, he killed somebody, and um, he was driving drunk, as was Matthew Broderick when he killed somebody. I didn't know that about Matthew Broderick. That was in the 80s. I think he and Jennifer Grey were driving around somewhere in Europe, I think, yeah. Or um, uh, Mark Wahlberg. Apparently, when he was younger, he punched someone in the head and caused them to go blind. I did not know that. Yeah. He was kind of a. He's kind of an asshole. I knew that. <laughs> I knew that he had had a very troubled youth. Yeah, he was all into like. Uh, he was like drug dealer like he mixed up the drugs and like um he'd beat the shit out of people and like yeah he made he made a guy blind i'm just trying to picture like teenage mark Wahlberg just like in a gang and stuff be like yeah my brother's new kids on the block yo like what (laughs) i don't know but i know that he often would speak of like his troubled childhood and like how um how was father flavin i think was the name of the the priest he met who kind of like got him on track and stuff. But mm. I didn't know that he blinded somebody. Yeah. Um, so I guess like, can you appreciate the art, but not the artist? I just imagine every single movie Mark Wahlberg makes, like he's just sitting there like next to somebody he turns to like the other person is like, I made a good movie, huh? And the guy just responds like, yeah, well, that guy you punch is never going to see it. Like every (laughs) single movie he makes, like someone could just say that to him. And like, that's. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I I highly recommend that no one ever actually says that to him. (laughs) Because you'll probably get punched and maybe go blind. Or. You would just reduce him to tears and like it would just I mean I mean if you punch someone so hard that you make him go blind, you deserve to cry a lot, at least. Yeah. And I mean I have to imagine that like given how much time has passed, you know, there's a lot of regret there. Um But again, I don't know the situation. I don't know the I don't know the details. Maybe the guy he punched, maybe it was self-defense. Maybe the guy he punched was, like, an even bigger asshole. I don't know. You know, the way that these things are, it's all hearsay, as far as we're concerned. There's nothing we really can say definitively about any of this stuff. Um, Tyrone Power Sr., father of Tyrone Power, obviously, um, 
on the film The Big Trail, which was John Wayne's first big movie. He didn't have another big movie for another nine years, but um, he raped one of the actresses. And John Wayne actually found out and beat the shit out of him. And it's rare that you're like, yeah, John Wayne's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, on the screen, yeah, John Wayne's awesome. But usually when you hear yeah, real life it's stories It's like, wow, he, that was a really racist remark. Or, yeah. wow, that was a really uh, <laughs> closed-minded thing to say. But, but yeah, that happened. Um, yeah. Although, I mean, with Tyrone Power Sr., it's not like there's, like, a bunch of Tyrone Power Sr. movies that anybody really... That's the only one I know of. Mm-hmm. And I only know of it because they mentioned it in the A&E biography of Tyrone Power that like oh his father did this on a movie but <laughs> trying to think who is the guy in um he's in lost highway he killed someone went to jail robert blake robert blake that's right oh yeah and phil specter do, do you yeah. not listen to phil specter's christmas album because he uh killed somebody or? yeah i don't know i mean if you were to like boycott everything phil specter has touched um oh my god or anything he's influenced yeah i mean you know you'd be missing out on a lot of great music and at the same time we're not saying that makes it okay or that he should <laughs> that be given a pass yeah i mean it's like you know if to, if like today they found like evidence that woody allen did in fact commit this uh this crime and he was you know brought into trial and sent us to prison then like yeah like he that's should go to you, prison that's what like, happens if you do that you go to jail and it would be like wow i mean everything i mean it's been 20 like he's been 20 years like getting away with this crime and that would be like wow woody allen sucks he's a a very that's a you know he's a despicable human pretty much everything from manhattan murder mystery to blue jasmine 20 years worth of movies like you'd be like well they really shouldn't have been made he yeah, should have been in he jail. should have been in jail and it's like, those are all i mean that's the roman polanski thing though i mean all those all those yeah. movies technically probably shouldn't have been made i mean she should have been in jail um but does that i mean it might cause you to like re to look at his films again with a different kind of eye i mean when i first got into woody allen and i should say that woody allen has been his films have been very important to me all my life. Mm-hmm. Like he was one of the first directors that, like, I really like got into. Like not ju- like we meant. I think it was like the first episode we were talking about people that got us into movies. Right, and I mentioned yeah. like Tim Burton was like the first one that I really paid attention to, just because like when I happened to be growing up. Yeah. But when I was like eleven or twelve, I happened to catch like on. TBS or TNT, um, Bananas, Sleeper, Annie Hall, Played Again Sam, and Everything You Always Want to Know About Sex But We're Afraid to Ask in one week. Wow. And I was like, who is this guy's amazing? Mm. And like, I remember I was in like sixth grade. I bought this book, The Woody Allen Companion. <laughs> And it just like went like in depth in all of his movies and stuff. And I was like, I need to see all these. And like over the years I have, I've seen every single one of his films mm-hmm. and he's done one a year since 1982. Um, and like ar- around this time or like shortly after, I'm, I don't remember the exact chronology, but like the soon Yi scandal, if you will, like was around then. And people didn't really talk about Dylan 
the seven-year-old child. Like, they didn't talk about that much because there wasn't any, like, evidence or anything. And, no, like, it was brought up from time to time, but it wasn't... Like, I got most of my news from, like, SNL, and you can't really joke about a seven-year-old in an attic. Right. You can joke about, like, oh, he's dating this, like, 21-year-old. But you you can't... Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I would hear about Sunni, but I didn't hear about the other one. And, like, because of that, because, like, the percept... People would be like, oh, Woody Allen's dating his daughter. Mm-hmm. Which is... That doesn't even make any sense. It's like he was dating his ex-girlfriend's adopted daughter. Still weird, but um, still weird. Yeah, but, I'll give you. I'll give you different. weird. Yeah, but it's not incest. Um, and like, so because that was like, you know, in the air, um, like I would sort of like look for things in his movies like that had mm-hmm. to do with like young. And I actually found at one point a reference to sex with minors in every single one of his films. Which was weird. I stopped looking like a rat, like all the ones like in the seventies and like in a lot of the ones in the nineties that I basically all the ones I'd seen by the time I was like 17 or 18, mm-hmm. I'd found references to that in. And of course the biggest one is it's what basically the movie's about is the film Manhattan where he's dating a 17 year old mm. where the character is in his forties and he's got a 17 year old girlfriend by, played by Mariel Hemingway, which was based on a true story. Woody Allen dated a 17-year-old in the 70s. But how old was he then? In his 40s. And how old is he now? He couldn't like have been his... 70-something. That's crazy. Wait, he turned 29 in December of 1930, or, or 1936. So, yeah, 77. crazy um so i mean like there's no denying that he has like he's got a history he's got an attraction to young women yeah although new york state 17 is legal yeah but there's a big difference between 17 and 7 well of course yeah but i mean again that that you know you can't i don't know it's a it's a whole thing that like you can't say definitively one thing that's um have you seen Hollywood Ending? No. It's not one of his better films. It was during, like, one of those... Every now and then he'd hit a period where, like, he's not turning out masterpieces. Mm-hmm. Um, he did, like, Small Time Crooks, Hollywood Ending, Curse of the Jade Scorpion, like, right? Right. Right yeah. there. Um, and, and Hollywood Ending, it's, it's like, it's cheesy. It's kind of, I, I like it. It's kind of funny. Um... And it's a story about like a film director who goes blind and he has to pretend he's not blind. Oh, I have seen that. Okay. Yeah, I had like, wow, I forgot about that one. Right. It's, it's like a very light comedy, like yeah. he was doing at that time. And then. No, that movie is great. Towards like the end of the film, like his psychiatrist is just, he starts asking him, like, you have a son, don't you? And he's like, yeah, but we don't really talk anymore. Mm hmm. And I remember thinking, like, is he really doing a movie, like, about the fact that his son hasn't talked to him since the scandal? And it was, and then he goes and he reunites with his son, you know, the character's son in the movie. And, like, yeah. and I was thinking, and he's like, like, is uh, he really, like, a, like, a like punk, punk guy? Yeah, punk yeah. Guy, yeah. And I'm thinking, like, is, it, is he, is this what this is about? Like, is, is, is this film, like, commenting on, like, that? And, like, it was very poignant in the middle of, like, a light movie. And um, in recent years... 
his biological son, that's the one who he sides with Dylan on this issue and he won't have anything to do with Woody. He hasn't talked to him since that time. Um, but one of his adopted children is now that he adopted with Mia is estranged from Mia and he won't have anything to do with her. And in recent years, he's started hanging out with Woody and Sunyi. And I find that interesting. It's crazy. I mean, the whole, I mean, that's a whole family situation yeah. that is like far from ideal in any regard. Um, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Um, we probably shouldn't talk too much more about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, my, my, my thing, I guess, is I can still watch a great, a great film is a great film. Yeah. Um, regardless of necessarily who made it. Sometimes it's hard to separate the art from the artist. Um, I, don't know. I remember when uh, when the Mel Gibson thing sort of happened. But the arrest where Jews start all start all wars and yeah, that he started making all these like racist statements and like kind of just being like you know, drunken, wife beating kind of all this all this shit was happening. Um, Did he beat his wife? I didn't even know about that one. Or maybe I don't know. There were some sort of allegations of uh, of of abuse towards either his girlfriend or his wife or something. I don't I don't know. Um, everyone knows Mel Gibson's a nut job yeah. or crazy in, in, you know, in some way. Um, his movie Apocalypto was coming out and I had, uh, earlier that year, I had actually been to Guatemala and studied the Mayan civilization for like a, a month. Um, and then this movie was coming out, which is all about looking at Mayan society and sort of like, you know, diving into that whole world. So I was really excited to see it. And then all this Mel Gibson stuff happened and I was, and, um, I was like, well, I still want to see the movie. And, um, I remember a friend of mine was like, how can you, you're going to see that movie? Like Mel Gibson directed that. He's, he's an awful person. Like, why would you go see his movie? And, I didn't really know what exactly to say to that. Um, Cause I guess there is, I don't know. It's on one hand, like, yeah, I'm, I'm giving, I'm forking over like $10 to experience to, you know, I guess in some way supporting the, the film at least. I don't know. I went and saw the movie. I enjoyed the movie. Doesn't mean I like Mel Gibson as a person. Because I don't. You know, if I met him, I'd probably be like, you know, he's not, I don't know. Kind of a slime ball. But. He is allegedly the father of Jodie Foster's children. Really? I didn't know that. Which is why when she got, I think it was a Lifetime Achievement Award at something last year. She had like kind of like a rambling acceptance speech, but like she, Mel Gibson was like sitting at like her table, like with mm. her kids and her partner, and like, um, she, I forget what she said, but it was like there was something. It made it sound it was something like "I owe you everything" or something like. It made it sound like, oh, maybe that rumor is true. Like I don't know. People will start talking about that again. 
Hollywood Rumors <sighs> with Max and Tim. <laughs> I want to say, um, just I have one last thing to say about the Woody Allen. Okay. Thing. Yeah. Um, like one thing that's really sad for like obviously the most tragic thing about this is even if a seven-year-old was not molested a woman believes that she was molested at the age of seven Mm -hmm. and like i i honestly believe that she believes that that happened um so like i would say that i guess is the most tragic thing but coming in at number two You know what? No. You know, this, I sound horrible saying that, like putting those two things together. What, what were you going to say? I was going to say, well, I'm still going to say it. Um, all right. One of the tragic things, I won't number them. Okay. All right. Uh, is that the collaboration between Woody Allen and Mia Farrow on screen mm-hmm. is one of the great actor-director collaborations of all time. It's up there with John Ford and John Wayne or... Um, Scorsese and De Niro or Scorsese and Keitel like it just they were amazing films that was the 80s were the best period for Woody Allen films and uh, I think that like his art suffered when he lost her Hmm. and she didn't do she hasn't done a lot since then right um which is her choice, really, but he actually, I forget what movie it was, he offered her a role in something, like, years later, hmm. and she was like, fuck no, what, are you kidding, like, <laughs> but, yeah. Well, apparently, in that um, 2020 interview, Woody Allen was talking about how he was having phone conversations with Mia Farrow, and she was like, you know, you bastard, like, you did this, and, uh, you know... I want to tell everybody that you, you did all this stuff. And then like, he'd get a phone call like the next, the next day saying like, so when are we making the next movie? And he was like, what are you talking about? Like, uh, there is no next movie. So, I mean, I, I don't know, but anyway, that's the, that's the Hollywood rumor report. <sighs> All right, so we're going to get into uh, Philomena and American Hustle soon, very soon. But first, we just wanted to tackle one last um, current event, I guess. Um, This is actually from a couple weeks ago, I think. But Quentin Tarantino was about to make a movie. No, he actually wasn't about to make a movie. He was writing a script, and he finished the first draft, and he sent it to a few people. And now he's not going to make the movie anymore because... One of those people gave it to their agent, and um, it leaked out all over Hollywood. And he had a bunch of actors and agents knocking on his door saying, like, I want to be in your movie. I want to be in your movie. And he wasn't even done with the script. The Hateful Eight was the movie that was going to be in start production, I think, this December or at the end of this year, I think, was his plan. Um, It was a Western. Um and I guess he was interested in Tim Roth and Michael Madsen and Bruce Dern for, uh, for roles and, and Christoph Waltz, um, and Samuel Jackson, I think. But, uh, yeah, now it's, uh, it's not happening. It's kind of a shame because, uh, I want to see that movie. <laughs> we might someday. 
Because all he said was he's just not going to make it next. Yeah, he's going to put it on the shelf and maybe he'll do it some other time down the road. And I guess it was Bruce Dern's representation. That's probably who, who it, it was, yeah. And he's suing Gawker.com because they put up a link to it. Yeah, because it, he wasn't like mad that the script had leaked online. That happened after the fact. He was more upset that like it was it had leaked out into the Hollywood community. And everybody had copies of the script and had read it and stuff and he wasn't ready to show anyone um and then gawker like put it online and uh now he's yeah now he's suing them for that Mm -hmm. i i haven't read the script Um, don't i read a little (laughs) bit about what what the plot was about i guess it was a uh it was a western set during the winter like the great silence like the great silence which was actually an influence on django unchained which you haven't seen that yet right no I um there's but it makes sense because it was directed by sergio corbucci who mm-hmm. directed django right so um yeah there are sequences in django that take place during the winter in the snow and stuff and he cited the great silence as one of the influences for that but this is a western that t- totally takes place in the in the winter and I guess, like, um, from what it sounded like, it, it was kind of broken up into two halves, almost. Um, I don't know which was first or whatever, but one of the one one half was like, or each each part was it sort of took place in this cabin, I think, where. I mean, I, this is all on memory, <laughs> a little plot synopsis, um, but it sounded like there were like these eight, the hateful eight. Uh, bounty hunters that were all like searching for somebody and they all wind up meeting in this uh in this one cabin and i think most of the movie takes place like in either this one location or two locations one half the movie's in this cabin and then another the other half's in some other place and then in the middle it's kind of bridged between like you know these uh these what you'd expect in a western like big wide open beautiful landscape you know on horseback kind of stuff but yeah i mean i don't know i'd i'd, I'd want to see it what was really frustrating for me is that um i watched inglorious bastards for the first time ever like the day before i heard this story <laughs> so you were all on like a tarantino high. yeah i was like oh man i can't wait to watch like all the other ones that I, i've missed mm-hmm. and i can't wait to see what he does next yeah and it's like we're gonna have to wait even longer but i mean really like i I don't know why I haven't gotten around to watch. Like, I still haven't seen Grindhouse or Four Rooms or Django Unchained. I've seen all the other ones. But I don't know why I finally got around to watching Glorious Bastards, like, last week or the week before, whenever it was. Was that a uh, Best Picture nominee? Yeah. I mean, that's why I watched it then. But, like, I you don't I, know, I don't know why I didn't, why watch didn't do it, it in the past. Before. Yeah. yeah. It's a great movie. Apparently not as great as The Hurt Locker, according to the Oscars. Have you seen The Hurt Locker? I haven't. My impression is that I won't enjoy it as much as Inglorious Bastards. Um, probably not. I mean, I enjoy Inglorious Bastards more, but I mean, it, they're completely different movies, and it's stupid to compare them, I guess. But <laughs> but that's what the Oscars. That's do. What the Oscars do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that it's like trying to pick between like you know what's the better movie like Filomena or American Hustle. <laughs> Or that same year as the Hurt Locker and Inglorious Bastards, you also had Avatar and the Blind Side. Yeah, 
four completely different. Okay. They're as different as you could possibly be, pretty much. But it was great that year that they had the Hurt Locker going up against Avatar because you got to have the drama of the, the spouses Big, sitting yeah, like Catherine two Piccolo rows away from each other. James and, Cameron, yeah. And like I, I still haven't seen the Hurt Locker, but I was glad that she won just, just because. <laughs> So he could just sit there and like watch her win. I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know any details about their relationship. You're very spiteful <laughs> against James Cameron, apparently. <laughs> ah, king of the world. But anyway, I mean, I guess that's all there is to the Tarantino story. <laughs> just that it's frustrating. And yeah, it annoying. is frustrating. I mean, like, I've gone through, like, I guess, certain phases with my, um, I don't know, my love of tarantino movies i guess it helps if you don't watch interviews with him well not even that okay not even like (laughs) you know who he is and how like kind of i mean he's crazy you want to talk about someone who's like you know just batshit nuts like he's nuts but can you imagine him and martin scorsese in a room full of coke just talking about movies has that happened you know that i I don't think it has, but I'm just imagining... Or it doesn't have to be Coke. Something that would get them, like, going. Well, it'd be Coke for uh, for Tarantino, and then... Yeah, it would have been Coke for Scorsese in the 70s and 80s. I don't know about that. But, I can't um, imagine doing a lot nowadays, but... Uh. But just, I mean, they're, they already just, like, both talk a mile a minute, and they're both, like, geniuses about film. Mm-hmm. Like no matter what you think of like their abilities as filmmakers, they're like true historians of the medium. Yeah. And, um, they can talk at length about any film. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean like initially when I first sort of like discovered Tarantino way back when, um, you know, like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, and it was probably around when Kill Bill came out. Um, that's, you know, I was, I was, yeah, I was still young and like, and it was like, wow, you know, all these movies are, they're awesome and great. Um, and then I kind of went through like a phase where it was just like, oh, like everyone likes Tarantino. Like he's not that great. <laughs> um, but it was, I guess it was, I don't know. Like I went away to, uh, to Full Sail uh, Film School and like everybody was like trying to like, well, not everybody, but there are a lot of people who, especially like film students, I think, try to like emulate tarantino and it's just kind of sad and like bad you think back to like the mid to late 90s there were all those like tarantino-esque films mm-hmm. <sighs> they, they even happen nowadays like, yeah um what was that movie uh seven psychopaths uh came out it's got um i forget who directed it it was like colin farrell and um christopher walken christopher walken sam rockwell uh and tom waits I remember wanting to see it because of the cast. Yeah, it very it's trying to be Pulp Fiction um, in a lot of ways. But anyway, um, yeah, no, I was just looking at like the different films that like the other students were making, and they're all about like you know, what about like the 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 big heist? You know, they're planning this heist, and like it all goes wrong, and like just like the kind of dialogue they're trying to write is very, uh, you know, just like Tarantino inspired or like just not even inspired it's just like emu- trying to emulate it and everyone was just holding tarantino as like the prime as like the god of film basically and uh there was like there's one uh student in my class who actually um 
got a tattoo of Tarantino's head on his back. Giant tattoo. Like, covers his entire back. Um, and you've seen, like, tattoos that try to make someone look... Try to recreate the likeness of someone. Yeah. And you're just like, hmm, doesn't really look that great. Like, it's kind of like that. His face is kind of scrunchy. Head very... Too, like it's almost too big it's too big of a forehead kind of thing um so it was like this giant tarantino tattoo um then like he like added um the john travolta and samuel jackson from pulp fiction and then like you know some characters from reservoir dogs and he's i think his goal is to like add characters from like all of his movies uh around him but i'm just like i don't know that that kind of like thinking that Tarantino is the the be-all end-all when it comes to filmmakers I was just like that's not true so I kind of became almost like I don't know anti-Tarantino for a little while but the fact is like his all of his movies are great there's just no denying it and like yeah I remember um yeah Inglourious Bastards came out after I came back from school and I was in that kind of like, you know, I don't know, that mindset. And I go and I see it. And I'm just like, that is an awesome movie. <laughs> and I saw Django Unchained and that's an awesome movie. Like Tarantino is awesome. Like he, like his movie, his, it just is. There's no denying that. Um, but it's not like uh, he is everything that there is to film. And his films practically say that they yeah, like, like they he, scream at you like he go watch these other he things. He wouldn't exist without all this other stuff. Yeah. So it's just like I don't know. It's it's crazy. It, it's it's shocking that like he is like a one of a kind filmmaker. Really, like there's nobody who's who, especially now, who's doing anything like what he's doing. Not just in like his style or stylistically, but. This is a director who has never made, he's never adapted anything. Well, but there's Jackie Brown, which is based on a book. Um, but he's never uh, taken like a uh, licensed material from like a franchise or like never, no remake, no sequel, no, none of that. And he gets offered that stuff all the time. Like studio heads over the years since like, Pulp Fiction basically have like thrown every kind of project at him and he's always turned it down no matter what the money because he's like I want to make my films you know and he's managed to be successful with it and uh it's just really it's impressive and admirable and yeah you can say like oh what if like you know Tarantino directed a James Bond movie or what if he directed like a superhero movie or something but he's Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> that would be something. But yeah, that's not that's not him. Yeah, I mean, I I look forward to whatever he does next. Um, always. Colin, our our biggest fan. We're actually recording talking <laughs> movies right now. So Colin, you'll be hearing this later, I suppose. Um, so. Yeah, I guess that's that's that for for current events and whatnot. We are anti-rape and pro-Tarantino, <laughs> and we miss Philip Seymour Hoffman. 
Yeah, that sums it up. Yeah. See, we could have just said that at the beginning and not have uh, an hour and a half worth <laughs> of talking about it. Um, all right, so we're finally going to start our uh, month of Oscar n- nominees. Woo! Yay, we're finally out of the, uh, the the box office bombs. That's awesome, to say the least. Yeah. Um, and we're going to double up. So this week we've got American Hustle and Philomena. Um, both of which I saw at Amy's Dinner and Movie, Guns Falls, New York. I saw both of them at um, Bowtie Cinema in Saratoga. So, you know, there are options out there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, which one do you want to talk about first? Um, Philomena. Okay. Because I, I saw it first. I saw it first, too. Uh, I, might, I might not remember it by the time we finish talking about American Hustle. I don't know. I saw Philomena like three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and uh, I just saw American Hustle last week. So, so American Hustle is a little more fresh in your mind. Yeah. Philomena uh, hooked me right from the very beginning. Um, when I, when you're the projectionist, you wind up seeing like the first couple minutes of each movie like many, many times. I'll string it up. I'll play it. I'll go down in the theater, watch the first like minute or two just to make sure the picture looks good the sound is good and whatever and there's a really funny joke at the very beginning of Philomena um, where Steve Coogan is sitting in a doctor's office and the doctor is like uh, he's going over his like uh, physical exam that he had and he's like you know blood pressure looks good normal um, you know your, your weight is good uh, oh stool sample outstanding and Steve Coogan has this like sudden look of pride on his face, and he's like, "Oh, well, <laughs> thank you." And the doctor's like, "Oh no, no, that just means you haven't taken one yet." And um, I, I thought it was just awesome. Like I, I saw that a couple times before I sat down and watched the movie proper. But I was, <laughs> it got me like interested. So like you in, saw that one part like several times. Yeah, because <laughs> it's right at the very, very beginning of the movie. Um, and I was just like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm already on board, you know? And it's such a Steve Coogan thing. Like, I, I don't know. Like I was, when I was going in, like, I love Steve Coogan. I think he's a genius. And I was like, I've seen him do like scenes within comedies where he'll do like a serious scene or something. And like, and I was just curious, like, this is how is he going to be doing like a dramatic? Is this film? one of his first dramatic roles? Or uh, I think he's dramatic roles? done some none that i've seen um he wrote this yes i noticed that that might be why he wrote it he was like i want to do a dramatic film and i'm nobody's writing them for me i'm gonna write one myself um yeah this actually um, i don't know if i've seen another movie with steve coogan hamlet 2 never never seen it I've, i've always heard great things about it my brother luke loves it it's um Kayla loves it. You you love it. Steve Phelps, I think, was a big fan of it. I want what? Well, no, that's. I almost told the story. I almost told just now in another episode, but I'm still not going to tell. It's not appropriate for the podcast. I got a funny <laughs> man. Story you're really with teasing this thing. Sorry. <laughs> One day you're going to have to divulge. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen. I don't think I've seen Steve Coogan in anything. Um, but he was great in this. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I I looking back on it, those opening moments, that opening scene how it sets it up as being like 
oh, it's a very funny moment. It's lighthearted. Um, and in those opening scenes, it sets a good tone. Um, especially because once you get into the backstory of Judy Dench's character, Philomena, it suddenly becomes really heartbreaking, like incredibly sad. And like, I, I was really feeling it in that first scene when she's describing where we, where we flash back and see her in the, uh, with the nuns and how they sold her son away. It's so heartbreaking. I was like, I was really feeling emotional about mm. it. And I don't know exactly what it was that stuck, struck such a chord with me, but, um, yeah, it was really well done. But I like that, um, even once it starts tackling, like, the serious, like, dark issues and mm-hmm. stuff, like, it can still go back to the lightness. Yeah, because it already with, established that tone at the beginning. Yeah, and even, it even, uh, I believe it ends with a joke. The running gag of her, like, uh, recounting the, like, Harlequin romance stories. Yeah. Like, um, her character is, inter- is really interesting, because it's, like, she's, she's such, like, a kind of daffy absent-minded old woman for so much of it but it's still like she's gone through this horrible she's had this horrible thing hanging over her whole life basically um and it's great like she really reminded me of my own grandmother in a lot of ways even the way that she looks i realized watching this that like my grandmother kind of looks like judy dench your grandmother must be hot uh (laughs) <laughs> and I think it's more just like Sorry. the way that she looked in this movie, like her hair and that sort of like perm kind of yeah. look and like the glasses. Um, I was just like, you know, if I squint like that, that looks like my grandma. And just the way that she acted, like my, my grandmother, um, talking about my grandmother on my mother's side, she used to always be into like the romance novels and like, all that kind of stuff. And um, she's not as like apologetic and sort of uh, submissive, I guess, as uh, Philomena is in this. Um, that's actually more like my, my grandmother on my father's side. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess what, they did a really good job of making her feel like a very real, well-rounded character. She wasn't just like a one-note thing. Like, you know, it could have easily been like, oh, we come to her and she's just heartbroken. And like, that's the only thing we really see of her is just like, oh, and I never saw my son again. And I've been searching and, that, and, that, and just like harping on that. But it's like, she's, you know, she is not consumed by it in, in the way that it like hangs over. And that's kind of the point of the movie, I guess is in the end like she's willing to forgive which is such a strong like it shows how strong she, she's strong enough to forgive exactly these yeah. people who did this horrible thing and he it's really it's ambiguous it's like he's either not strong enough to forgive or he's strong enough to not forget like it depends on what you think the strength is yeah because it's like well i mean she's a devout catholic in mm-hmm. in, in christianity you know it's forgiveness you know, you you like hate the sin, not the sinner. That Forgive sort us of our idea. trespasses, and you know we we will not judge on earth; we'll be judged by you know in the afterlife and on Judgment Day. You know, and it's not our place to pass judgment. And Steve Coogan's character is a very is very vocal about his uh, atheism. Mm-hmm. 
and he's just like i i can't forgive these people for what they did to you and like yeah and, and you're it, totally with both of those totally you, points. you, you, you understand, understand both, her and you understand him yeah and it's like on the one hand like you want to see that damn nun get her upcomings you know yeah and you want to see steve coogan just like yell at her and say like you are horrible for what you did and you're wrong you don't uphold the christian values and it's totally right totally valid but yeah i mean but philomena shows that you know what those true values are supposed to be which may be the uh and i guess you know that's really the only way to to come to combat somebody like like the the nun uh what was her name like hildebrand or hildegard or something like that it's been a month i'm not yeah something sure something like that <laughs> the uh the, the the main antagonist i guess um you know the people like that like exist and, and there's a lot of uh you hear news stories all the time about people within the catholic or christian faith like doing things that are very unchristian and that hypocrisy that exists um within the religion people like to yell at them <laughs> but that seems to only fuel them and empower them more because they're like because that's when when steve coogan is like yelling at her her response is like i went my whole life you know with not <laughs> spreading my legs at all <laughs> didn't phrase it exactly like that but um she's like i didn't have sex at all and these you know whores and these heathens they they got what was coming to them they like to argue, but when Philomena is like, you know, I forgive you because that's what a Christian or true Christian would actually do. That is, you know, more able to get through to them because that's what they're supposed to be structuring their whole life around, but they're not. I couldn't do it. I couldn't forgive them. Like, I don't, if I was in that situation, it would be hard. Yeah. yeah. Judy Dench is really, like, what else have you seen her in? Um, well, the all of the Bond movies that she was in. Oh, that's right. I, I guess uh, isn't she? She's that. What's her name? M. M. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so how many? Of that? That's uh, seven Bond movies. Um, she's great in all of those. Um. You see Shakespeare in Love? No, never seen Shakespeare in Love. I believe, didn't she? I think she got her Oscar for that. For uh, she played Queen Elizabeth Queen, right. in like two scenes or something. Best supporting actress. Yeah. Or knowing the Academy, they'd be like, "Well, you know, the best supporting category is pretty full this year, so we're gonna put you in like the best leading act- <laughs> actress in a leading role, you know, or some bullshit like that." I um, I don't know what like I know her from. But what I'm most familiar with her from is um, the TV show As Time Goes By, mm-hmm. which is like one of my favorite shows. Is that a um, soap? No, it's um, it's a it's a British sitcom or Britcom as they say. Okay. Um, I usually watch it on PBS on Saturday nights. <laughs> um, it's we watched it. Mm-hmm. Kayla is telling me that we watched it. What well, what was it? Uh. Oh, wait a minute. It's like an older couple who they knew each other decades earlier and then they re- like re-met and they like get together. It was on PBS when we had PBS. 
Who is the actor in it? I forget, but the character's name is Lionel. Lionel, yeah. And the, he there's has like a daughter. There's like a daughter. Or something. There's a daughter, and then there's a uh, there's a young woman who works for her that also lives with them. And then there's this guy named Alistair who's basically Nolan. <laughs> um, and he's like uh, Lionel's agent because Lionel's an author. I think yeah, I think I remember we watched like a couple episodes of that. That's right. But yeah, that's I don't know. I I really love that show and I love her on it and uh she's a she's a funny gal. <laughs> yeah, she's great. And it's like I feel like I've I I feel like I've seen something else with her. But I guess like I mean she's yeah. one of those actors that they're mostly British actors who they show up in like sometimes just really tiny roles mm-hmm. sometimes they're just like working actors and it's hard to remember like what they're from but yeah but she's become like uh i feel like she's i mean i could be completely wrong but it's interesting how like her career seemed to really take off once she became like older i don't know if she'd been working like her whole life or acting her whole life um She's always had that old face. Yeah, even, like because like, even thinking back to like uh, Goldeneye, which was like, geez, it must be going on twenty years now. That came out in like ninety four, I think. So it was twenty years ago, and she was. So still... she would have been sixty when that came out. She was born in nineteen thirty four. So she's eighty years old. She will be in December. Holy shit, that's crazy. So I guess that's why she looked old in Goldeneye because she was. She was in the best exotic Marigold, Marigold Hotel, right. which played at uh, Amy's Forever. I was trying to remember if she was in it because uh, Maggie Smith is also in that, and I was like, I was like, no, I think I'm thinking. I of usually Maggie. put them together in my head. Yeah, and they're both in that, and I was like, I thought she was in that, but no, maybe I'm just thinking of Maggie Smith. Um, she's uh, she she's in the Harry Potter movies. Um, for those who may not know the name. Um, oh, and I guess she's in Downton Abbey too. Um, but yeah, she she is uh, really really great in uh, in Philomena. Is she nominated this year? Uh, I'm not sure. Probably should have looked this up before uh, talking about it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense, and it's, it's well deserved because it is a very nuanced performance. Um, like I said, it's not just like one kind of note. Like she, she can be. She's funny in this movie and heartbreaking, and you feel the desperation and like the uh, the desire. But at the same time, she's like, she's so ready to just like let other people kind of just do what they're gonna do and like. She doesn't want to bother anybody. Mm. And, um, I mean, she she doesn't want to bother anybody to the point where, like, she didn't tell anyone about it for, like, 50 years. It's hard to imagine somebody going through that and being held responsible by, you know, by these nuns her whole life for something that she did when she was 16 or 17 years old. And to find out that for a good chunk of his life, 
he was seeking her out. Yeah. And like that he just And that they came so close to reconnecting and it was it was blocked on yeah. purpose. Um and I talk about we talk about this like it like these are real people and it actually happened because it it was inspired by true events. Yeah, which I'm really glad that when I went into that theater I knew nothing about the movie. I knew absolutely. Like all I knew was, oh, I hear it's based on a true story. That's uh, that's all I knew. And um, then I found out like later, like after I watched the movie, I was like looking up reviews and stuff. And I, all these people were complaining online that like to promote the movie, they'd done something on like some news channel where they had like um, the author on and they were just talking about the movie and they were basically telling the whole, telling story. The whole story. And it's like, yeah. well, yeah, it is a true story. So it's not like, oh, spoiler. But like, I can't imagine going into that movie and like knowing exactly. It's such a great mystery. Like, oh, yeah, totally. Find out piece by piece, everything that happens. Yeah, because it is almost like a uh, I mean, it is a mystery. Um, I was going to say it's kind of like a murder mystery, but it's, you know, it's not. It's just a it's a regular mystery. <laughs> no murder involved but i mean it plays all kind of like a murder mystery almost or you know we're investigating this this thing and you know that there's a secret and you're just waiting to dig it up and it's it's just so ridiculous that like when they were there looking for the records like the first time they go um like they were so close to his grave and they had no idea he was buried right there. All, yeah, and, and it's, it's like, the, the, all the nuns had to do was just be like, oh, he's right over there. Yeah, but... But they're just so stubborn and just awful. The film doesn't really paint um, Catholicism or the Republican Party in a very good light, which I guess is kind of typical for Hollywood. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'd, <laughs> I'd say so. I mean, it is funny because, like, yeah, you find out that you know the son had worked in the Republican Party and was an advisor, or no, what he, what, what was he to uh, Reagan and Bush? He wasn't an advisor. He was a. Uh, I don't remember. He was like a press guy to them or something. I don't know. He worked with them. And Steve Coogan's character had actually met him and, and didn't Steve, remember yeah. until he saw the picture of him in the room with him. Which, that was an awesome moment. Um, and yeah, then you I, wonder, like, there was another, like, ambiguous moment where, like, he remembers, he sees himself in a picture with them, and he remembers that, like, oh, he was there. And then Philomena is saying, like, oh, you met him, and, like, asking questions. And, like, it's possible, like, Oh yeah, I remember now. And he, he could have just made that up to make her feel good, mm. which, like, at that point in the film, it hasn't been something that would have been his goal. Just like I'm gonna do this just to make her feel good, right? And like that was a turning point of sorts for that. But like he was, um, he was sort of hiding certain information from her mm. like when he's trying to get a hold of uh, the boyfriend. And he doesn't want anything to do with him. And she's like, oh, you know, did what does he say? And he's like, oh, he was out of the office. I couldn't get in touch with him. After repeatedly trying to, like, get through to him. Um, but, yeah, about the Republican Party thing, and you mentioned how it doesn't really paint them in a positive light. They, they show that this person was working for them. 
And then they make the uh, remark somewhere in there, like, because he was gay and he had AIDS, they're like, oh, he was very conflicted because, you know, Reagan was cutting funding for AIDS research or whatever. Um, so, yeah, they do kind of take a few few jabs. And, I mean, as far as, like, gay Republicans go, like, I feel like... It- in the Reagan administration, like during that era, I feel like it was very hard to be like a gay Democrat also. Oh yeah. No, I mean, that, that was like in, in the eighties, I, I don't think, you know, but that was like the whole AIDS thing was a thing where Reagan was like out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. What AIDS? There's no AIDS until Rock Hudson died. And he was like, Oh, that's a guy I actually was friends with. I better pay attention to this now that it affects me personally. That mm-hmm. happens to a lot of politicians. Their friend dies of AIDS. Or, (laughs) um, like, let's say uh, Dick Cheney isn't really that great with gay people until his daughter daughter wants to marry a woman. And then he's like, well, it's my family. (laughs) We'll do what we want. Right. Or protecting their own children from the draft or, you know, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that go I mean, it's not just a Republican thing. No. That's across the board. But, yeah, I mean, the movie doesn't really focus too much on, like, the politics of anything. But, I mean, it's just, I, well, it's it, do, it does, um, I mean, the religious aspect of it. Yeah. There is a, uh, a debate kind of slowly building through the movie about, you know, atheism versus Catholicism. But, yeah, I mean, I thought it was a... Uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. Um, I was surprised it was nominated for Best Picture. I really enjoyed it. I was just surprised that they got that nomination. Yeah. It probably doesn't have much of a chance to win, I, I would guess. I wouldn't put money on it. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to be surprised. I don't know. It's a but, great movie. I, yeah. I really enjoyed it. Um like I said, I didn't know anything about it when I went in. Um, if you're listening and you haven't seen it, I'm sorry because <laughs> we just spoiled it for you. Um, but I would recommend seeing it. It's, uh, it's an, it was it was very enjoyable. One interesting thing was um, I never really think of Stephen Frears that often, but I think about him all the time. <laughs> I know. Um, like, when I watch a film he's directed, I like it. But I, I, it's hard to, like, look at, like, the films I've seen that he's done and, like, try to figure out, like, oh, what do they have in common? Like, what's his stamp that he puts on it? And I really can't think of any. Because, um, like, I don't know. They're, like, my beautiful laundrette, prick up your, pr- uh, it's hard to say, prick up your ears. Or prick up your rears, if you will. That's supposed to be the pun of the title. And this film have, like, the gay thing going on. But it's not to any sort of, like... I don't know. There's no, like, stylistic connection, really. And then Dangerous Liaisons and High Fidelity. Like, they're all very different films, really. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen The Queen or The Grifters, the other big one. But I think those are the only ones I've seen. This might be the only one that I've seen. You haven't seen High Fidelity? No. I love High Fidelity. 
I was gonna say you haven't made him watch it or anything like. <sighs> yeah, Kayla has it on DVD. Um, then I feel like just the musical aspect of it would watch High Fidelity. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should. All right. Um. Stephen Frears is not up for a, uh, a nomination for director. Are any of the directorial nominations for people who didn't direct a Best Picture nominee? No, all, all of them are Best Picture nominees. I feel well. like now that they're up to like the nine or ten nominations, and that there's a higher probably, chance yeah. that one of them's going to be. Um, yeah, one thing I actually found out recently about how about the nomination process for the different categories is. It, there isn't just one body that nominates or chooses or votes on every single category. Yeah. The Academy is broken up into sort of like sub committees, I guess you'd say, or, or um, I forget what they're called exactly, but there's like the director's uh, membership and you actually have to be a director right. to vote on the nominees for best director and to vote on who wins um everybody votes on best picture yeah but you know it's broken up in departments like that right so that everybody's they're like you're being voted on like by your peers yeah and that's something i didn't realize until just a couple days ago actually and it makes more sense now when something like uh when a movie wins best picture but the director wasn't even nominated or maybe loses to another director it's because there are two completely separate groups of people um voting on them so yeah makes more sense now is uh is david o russell nominated for, for hustle? American hustle yes yes I think russell hustle <laughs> let's do the russell hustle <laughs> <laughs> and Steve McQueen, back from the dead, is up for an Oscar. When I saw 12 Years a Slave in a theater full of old people, when that credit came on at the end of the movie, like, there was a bit of like, oh, <laughs> uh, that was a horrible audience to watch that movie. Steve with. McQueen, that, that guy from Bullet? I thought he died a long time ago. <laughs> I think that was my first Steve McQueen movie. I don't think I've seen, uh, what else did he do? Hunger and Shame. Those are his other ones. I've seen The Blob. The director, Steve McQueen, the guy who did Julius Slave. The actor, Steve McQueen, I think I've only seen The Blob and The Towering Inferno. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen any of his like iconic roles. Yeah, I, like I have The seen. Great Escape. Or, um, and or, I haven't seen any of the director, Steve McQueen's uh, other films. Well, I haven't seen any of his films because I haven't seen uh, 12 Years a Slave yet. It's hilarious. Yeah, Is Steve Coogan in that too. <laughs> oh, he should have been. Paul Giamatti's in it, and Brad Pitt in very weird cameos. So yeah, anything more on Philomena? I don't think so. Oh, I will bring up this. You haven't seen the the show Lost. Um, I watched the first twenty something episodes of the first season. The uh, the musical score in Philomena is really good. I, I really liked it. Um, and there are a couple cues that I was like, oh, this is uh, it's really good. 
Then um, I actually checked later, and it's nominated for best score, which I was like, all right, that makes sense because it's uh, Alexander Dis- Displot. Dis- uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name exactly. But um, there are par- parts of of the of the score to uh, Philomena, which sound almost exactly like a certain cue from the show Lost. Like maybe you, that's his thing, like how Danny Elfman always has that kind of like no different composers though. Oh okay. Cause Lost was done by Michael Giacchino. Oh, that's right. Who yeah. did uh, John Carter? Yeah. Which I was able to pick up on that. But I'm listening to Philomena, and I'm like, this sounds exactly like Lost. But it's not. Is it? But I'm like, it doesn't make. It doesn't make any sense. They should disqualify it then, because it's using uh, themes from elsewhere. I almost want to like put them next to each other, because I think you'd be like surprised, like how similar they are. Maybe that's why I really like the score to Philomena because it reminded me of that, and I love the score to Lost. But um, so I guess that's Philomena. So the second film that I saw, I saw it in the same day. Did you see it in the same day? No, you saw it more recently. Yeah, I just saw it last uh, a week ago today. Yeah, I had the I had the double feature of Philomena and American Hustle. They work well together, like peanut butter and jelly. Uh, Not really, but. Um, yeah, American Hustle by David O. Russell. He's American Hustle. <laughs> the Russell Hustle. Max is very tired. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we've been recording for a long time. Um, I uh, It made me a little dizzy. The movie? Yeah. It was the first movie I've ever seen in the BTX theater at Bowtie. Ah. Bowtie Extreme. Bowtie Extreme. Which, uh, I like that it has, like, rocking chairs. Was it in, in 3D? It. No. Oh, okay. It's just... Um, yeah, those seats in that theater are nice, eh? Yeah, I'd never been in that one before. Really nice. Uh, like, all the seats in all the theaters are really good, but in, like, that specific theater, they're... They have the rocking yeah. motion, yeah. Um, but it has the best, like, sound system. Like, it's like a surround type thing, and, uh, mm-hmm. and the screen is bigger than yeah. the other screens, which was kind of the issue. Because David O. Russell really loves to move the camera. Mm-hmm. And digital projection and a constantly moving camera, everything keeps going in and out of focus. Mm. And it was like kind of taking its toll on my head by the end of it. There were some focus issues on the one that I saw. And this was, this was a film print. Oh, okay. Um, and I figured it was just the film because like, and I've projected it a couple times. The movie starts and it's like completely out of focus, so I adjust the. Uh, adjust oh, the focus well, the knob. beginning, yeah, the like the old style logos and stuff. Right. Yeah. So there's all these old style logos, and they, as a projectionist, like this is the kind of stuff that I'm like, oh, why did they have to make it like this? <laughs> but like the filmmaker side of me is like, I understand why they did it because it looks cool. Yeah. But like whenever they do things like um, 
some movies will have like a film effect in them to make it look like the film is burning up or something. Yeah. <laughs> like oh, that gosh. makes me shit my pants. <laughs> Cause I'm like, no, what's the, Oh, or like, you know, the weird things like that. Um, or if like, yeah, the, per- the things are purposely out of focus. I'm like, what is out of focus? I'm like, Oh God, what do I do? Um, yeah, that kind of thing will drive you crazy. But the beginning, um, they have all these old timey, uh, well, not old timey. <laughs> they're from the seventies, seventies style, uh, like opening logos. Um, so they're very soft, but the, I, so I adjust the focus ring and I make it, you know, in focus and then the movie will play for about five minutes in focus. And then it will suddenly start to get softer and softer and softer and it becomes completely out of focus. So then I run up to the projection room, adjust the knob again, put it back in focus. looks great. And I sat and I watched the movie. Um, and probably about an hour in, it started to happen again where it was got out of focus since so I had to run up to the projection and twiddle the knob again. Um, one of the benefits of being the projectionist while watching a movie is like a lot of times in a theater, you might not be able to, uh, fix that kind of thing. You know, if you're sitting watching a movie in the theater and suddenly the movie's out of focus, like there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. But if you're the projectionist, you just run up and you adjust it to your liking. Um, same thing with sound. You're like, Oh, I want to turn it up a little bit. Um, so yeah, and I just figured it was like the film print was weird, but because um, it happens repeatedly, I, every time I play the movie, I have to deal with that. But um, I mean, I was only really noticing it like when the usual digital thing where it, the moving camera. So that you're blurs. so the projector is having some refresh rate issues. Yeah, well, digital projection. So, hmm. well, I mean, like some some projectors like can do have a higher refresh rate that would make it so you don't really notice that as much are those like the really expensive ones that's why it could be none of the theaters i go to has that i don't know i mean like <laughs> i've never really noticed too much of a uh of an issue sometimes with 3d movies like i'll notice some like yeah screen jagginess like as the camera pans it'll be like you know get that choppy effect but it doesn't happen that often i don't really see when i saw blue jasmine like at crossgates it happened mm. and Hitchcock and I think those might be the only non 3d movies I've seen at Crossgates lately. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, so what, well, besides it, the movie making you feel sick, um, <laughs> what, what did you think of the actual film? Oh, it was, um, Amy Adams cleavage is amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's, I feel like that's the thing most people will take away from the film because it's always there. They just keep putting her in these like super low cut dresses and she ain't wearing a bra. Not even like low cut, like yeah. like side. She's like cut. hanging like, it's, out. Yeah, yeah, it's really weird. Like, But I understand I why know. they're doing it in the story wise because they're using her as this like, hey, look at this pretty thing over right. here. Right, but it's more of like, where is the camera looking all the time? <laughs> like, it's almost like the camera will do like a once over. Like, the camera will be like, <laughs> like going around the room. And just, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. At one point, uh, she's, they're like walking down a hall and like the camera's like behind them. Facing yeah, and back. it just goes and down it, and looks yeah, at her butt. Yeah. And, and then it like kind of goes, goes back, back up. up. Yeah. Um, and it's to the point where it's, it, it's not just simply like, oh, well, this is just typical. Um, what's that word? 
sex. objectification oh, object. of women. It's like he's drawing a lot of attention to what he's doing with mm-hmm. the camera. So like, it's, and it's not like I mean I understand it like more so earlier on in the story maybe to establish the fact that like they are designing this character for her to play that is this like part of her role was to be eye candy for these people who were who they were trying to con you know yeah. so that they would be distracted but they've already established that fact well into by the time we get to that you know that butt shot i mean we're like you know over an hour and a half into yeah. the movie and it's like yeah it, it is interesting i don't know why they uh i mean i can guess why they did it because they want to keep the audience interested um i suppose but and at the same time they don't like really glamorize her. I don't think she's wearing makeup at all in the movie because they'll they'll do these close ups. You'll see like veins and her pores and things like. It's kind of harsh with the lighting on her or something. Like I don't know. It's very interesting. Hmm. I don't know if I noticed that. Maybe it's a digital thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Maybe. I noticed Jennifer Lawrence's legs too were very veiny. <laughs> I like how you asked me what I thought of the movie, and I'm just like, I'm going to pick apart these actresses physically. Yeah. <laughs> what did I think of the movie? Well, Amy Adams was like, her skin was awful. I saw her pores and veins. And Jennifer Lawrence, oh my God, her legs were so veiny. <sighs> yeah. This might be, um, like, I, I'm, I finally get Christian Bale. He was... He really impressed me in this movie. He disappeared into it. You oh, didn't, yeah. you weren't, oh, what, yeah. like, I almost don't, um, before I say what I'm about to say, I'm just going to assume that you've all seen American Hustle, because I'm going to say something that I didn't know was in the movie, and I was very happy to see Robert De Niro. Yeah. I didn't I know he was no in the idea. movie. Yeah, I didn't know he was in He's there. in just, like, this one scene. And I was like, whoa. And, like, there, apparently, um, like, behind the scenes like on the set david o russell just like he how was it oh did or de niro like when he got to the set like he kind of like did his like hello everybody like to all the cast and crew and stuff because he probably assumed like well all these people are gonna be very excited to see me because i'm robert de niro Mm -hmm. um and so he kind of like introduced himself to everybody and then uh later like after they've been working on the scene a little while he goes over to david o russell and he's like who is that guy? Like, who, who is this other guy that I'm acting with? And he's like, that's Christian Bale. And he's like, wait, isn't it Christian Bale, Christian Bale? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, I didn't even realize. And so David O'Russell like reintroduced him. Like, like Christian, he didn't even realize it was you. So congratulations. You fooled De Niro. And like, <laughs> De Niro was like very impressed that he just like disappeared into. Which is funny because in the scene that they're in together, he actually says that to Christian Bale. He's like, who is this guy? <laughs> Who are you now? <laughs> it's awesome. Like, um, no, I like Christian Bale. Like, I, yeah, I mean, I've seen like a good amount of stuff with, with him. This was like the first role that I've seen him in where I'm just like, wow. Yeah, he, yeah. he is really, really and, like, good. I've seen him do like good work before. Yeah. I, uh, but like, you know, maybe the fighter, like I, I was impressed with it, but it was like a kind of like over the top, like cartoony type thing. Yeah, this was like a very... I he's know. just real. Yeah, totally. It's not like he and he could have real. He could have easily turned into like you know, hey, I'm the sleazy scumbag guy who's yeah. like conning you, whatever you know, like in the hands of a lesser actor. But I mean, he really put some, created a very sympathetic character out of this like sleazy scumbag guy. Yeah. 
sympathetic sleazy scumbag guy. The sympathetic sleazy scumbag, yeah. They got, although, I mean, the most... Jer- this is, my, I think, my first experience with Jeremy Renner. And um, he's adorable in the movie. Oh, yeah. And he's the most sympathetic. Because he's like... Yeah, he does bad things, but like you can... He, you know he seems that, like, authentically gen- to be like, genuine, I want to like, help yeah, totally. people. And like, he just gets caught up in it. And then like... Irving is like heartbroken that like oh I finally made a friend yeah, yeah. and I'm hurting him I like and I like the microwave how yeah it, it literally is like this like image and symbol of their friendship and it literally goes up in smoke because of his wife which turns yeah. out to be the reason why it all goes up in smoke and um, I like Jennifer Lawrence talking about the microwave like <laughs> what do they even call it a science oven or something? Yeah, the science oven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I was reading about these things. You're not supposed to use them because they take the... F- they take the nutrition out of your yeah. food. And it's like, oh, it's weird. that Like, people knew that back then, but we just... Now they're just a part of our kitchens. Yeah. And it's like, no one cared enough to stop. I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know if there's been, like, definitive sort of long-term proof about continuing continual use of a microwave i mean they do take the quality out of the food yeah i mean anyone will tell you when you reheat something in a microwave it gets you know yeah spongy and weird and like um she was odd in the movie jennifer lawrence yeah i was it's another nomination that i'm kind of disappointed in where it's like it's like Silver Linings Playbook. I was like, oh, it's kind of cool that she was nominated, but I hope she doesn't win. She won for that, right? She did win. Yeah, that because I was like, that's it's, crazy. It didn't seem like it seemed like if if you go into Silver Linings Playbook thinking like I'm gonna see an Oscar winning role or Oscar winning performance here, you might be disappointed. But if you go in just thinking like, oh, it's, she's good in it, then you know she is good in it. Mm-hmm. And this one, it's so absurd and ridiculous the character she's playing or the way she's playing the character and like it's a good performance if you're in the right mood for it <laughs> i thought it was a I good know. performance i i liked it like she just i don't know when she goes off on her like little tangents and rants and stuff it's it's hilarious the whole um <clears throat> live and let die scene that was amazing I was I lost. I was like laughing hysterically. Was, what the that fuck was is really she doing? great. That like was whipping awesome. her head around and stuff. And the kid <laughs> is just sitting there. And then when the song kicks in, it's like da na na da na. And she's like scrubbing the uh, yeah the the, the what the um I don't know the drawers or whatever. But um, do you remember when she was talking about the um the power of intention? Yes. Yeah. All right, I just I was looking through the the goofs on IMDb. And there's a lot for this movie, like anachronism type things. And like any period film, you're going to find, there's going to be a handful of things. I mean, they're like, that wasn't supposed to be around in 1978. But there's so many. And the fact that one of them is Wayne Dyer's Power of Intention, the book that inspired Rosalind, was written in 2004. Hmm. That's a, like that's I feel like they're doing something like that's on purpose then. Like I feel like a lot of it might have been on purpose. It's just we're being hustled or something. Like I don't the, know. Like the maybe that's the, Yeah, 
like I, I don't know like but i mean film is a hustle and yeah, it's, that it, it's, it's conning show. the audience into believing that yeah, it totally. happened anyway and i'm wondering if that's what that was about or if they were just completely well they tell you right from the beginning they say some of this actually happened which apparently is how they started the last michael bay movie pain and gain or something i guess they took that line from pain and gain I, I, I don't, I don't know that. I don't watch Michael Bay movies after Armageddon. So I just, I'm, but someone said that. <laughs> you think people will say that after the real Armageddon? I don't watch Michael Bay movies <laughs> since Armageddon. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed the movie. Um, I thought there were great performances all around. Um, um, I this is a random thought. Louis C.K. I didn't expect him either. I I didn't know he was in the movie. Um, did we ever hear the end of the ice fishing story? No. Ah, oh, son of a bitch. I wanted to know. Maybe it's better we don't know what happened. The ice fishing story. I like that. <laughs> when Bradley Cooper yells something like, "Oh, that's he fell through the ice and died," and or something, and he was like. That's not how it happened. He died a lot later or something. Like, Many years later yeah. from a totally unrelated incident. <laughs> yeah. With the exception of The Fighter, I think all of David O. Russell's films could be called comedies. Um, I haven't seen his first two. I just got Flirting with Disaster on DVD a few days ago. I was in Saratoga. I went to the... Um, oh, what is it called? The book? bag shop or the book bag and book i don't know the, the little store inside of the library uh they had dvds there for a dollar fifty so i got that mm. and i haven't watched it yet but i have yet to see spanking the monkey his first film about like um mother son incest supposed to be hilarious though <laughs> <laughs> hilarious and awkward but yeah i love three kings I Heart Huckabees, uh, sometimes I love it. Other times I'm like, eh, I don't know. I've no, I haven't seen either of those movies. Uh, Silver Linings Playbook. I, re- I really enjoyed that one. And this. Yeah, Bradley Cooper was... Uh... They all got nominated again, right? Like, just like last year? Yeah, I think all four. It's two years in a row he's directed a film that had nominations in all four acting categories. Oh, yeah. So I'm sure a lot it's of a pretty, actors would a, love to work for him. Now. That's a pretty impressive feat. Yeah. When you think about it, I mean, it, I, I, it's impressive to just have one movie claim all four adding ca- uh, acting categories, but um, but to do it twice in a row, it's pretty crazy. And I like that they're kind of switched, because like Bradley Cooper was up for Best Actor last year, this year Best Supporting. Oh, Jennifer, Lawrence Jennifer Lawrence was, yeah. but yeah, and then I was reading random trivia about this year's oscars and this is um jennifer lawrence she's she's only 23 years old is this her third and nomination? this is her first this is her third nomination so it makes her the youngest actress um ever to have three nominations i worry about her <laughs> why <laughs> no i just i don't know to keep you up at night yeah i just you worry about all of I just sit on the, edge the money of, that she's making. I sit on the edge know. of my bed and just say, oh, God, just don't let it go to her head. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I'm, I'm fine with whatever happens to her. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I watched... Um, I'd never seen her in anything before. And then I, last year, shortly before the Oscars, I watched Winter's Bone and Silver Linings Playbook like within a couple of days of each other. And I was just like, who the fuck is this? Why haven't I been paying attention to this person? Yeah, like, she's, she's great in Winter's Bone. Yeah, I mean, she, she's, she's really good. I, was, I didn't realize she was so young. I mean, 23. It's crazy. Remember what you were doing when you were 23? Weren't winning Oscars. I feel kind of depressed, huh? I was at Purchase learning about movies. She's already got an Oscar. This is her third <laughs> nomination. <laughs> Fuck you, Max. What are you doing? Like, <laughs> Fuck me. Uh, um, I don't know a lot about the true story. Do you? The the lab scam no I, I know nothing about it this was another movie i didn't know a single thing about it going in except for you know the cast like i'd heard of that term before but i didn't know anything about it and yeah and like i started looking into it a little bit after i watched it but i was like i don't really care i feel like the fictional version was so much more entertaining i'd rather just watch the movie again than like read about the real thing yeah i almost wish that like I don't know. What do you think about the ending? Were you satisfied with the with the the conclusion of everything? What was these uh, like? How everybody turned out? Yeah. Because it almost to me it almost felt like the story just kind of ran out. And I think it was. Well, I mean, probably because it was based on the actual events. As far as, like, the four main characters, I feel like they were resolved somewhat. Like, Jennifer Lawrence got her, like, kind of, like, Prince Charming, her mafia guy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Amy Adams and Christian Bale are together, and they have the kids sometimes. Mm -hmm. And Bradley Bradley Cooper Cooper is just just sad because he lost everything. I, I don't know. It's just, like, something about the ending didn't sit well with me. I was just like, well, it's probably because you didn't hear the end of the ice fishing story. Yeah, they didn't that tie must have up been that it. loose that must end. Have been it. Yeah, you're like something's missing That's from something. this end. What was missing? Um, maybe something more with uh, Jeremy Renner's character. I don't know. Some sort of resolution or something. I don't know. But I mean, like he got punished and. But it would have been nice if there was like one last moment where he was like, "Irving, I forgive you" or something. But <laughs> no, I don't want can't that. Have yeah. I, I almost felt like it was t- everything was tied up a little too n- nice and nice and neat. Like I don't think that Irving and uh, what wasn't Edna? That was that was her fake name. What was her? What was Amy Adams' real name? Cynthia Sin. I think it was like Cynthia or something. I feel like they they wouldn't have ended up together. Sydney. Sydney. Okay. Yeah, it's close enough, Cynthia. You know, I just I don't know. It seemed like their relationship was pretty pretty damaged beyond repair. How much of her feelings for Bradley Cooper's character do you think were real? I think it was real enough to the point where she felt I mean, obviously she she felt bad about what she was doing to him. 
I think initially it wasn't there. There there wasn't really anything there, except for maybe like the uh, the passing sort of attraction. But I don't know. If she really felt uh, felt the same way towards him as she did. I think I don't think she did exactly. But I don't know. I've been thinking about getting a perm for a while now, and um, I think based on what Bradley Cooper does in this movie, <laughs> I might just do the curlers. Really. I think you'd be better off with, uh, I don't know, like Jeremy Renner's hair. That was like, was that even, was that a wig? I don't like, know. Just, I don't know. <laughs> it was like a plastic helmet. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think I might try some curlers at some point. That's what I take away from this film. <laughs> you're watching and you're like, God, I really got to get some curlers. Danny Elfman did the score. Yeah, I didn't really notice. I noticed the score. that at the end, and I was like, "Oh, huh, weird." It, it was more. It was more I... about the songs, uh, the, yeah. the soundtrack, you know. And there it were a lot of. I really them. paid attention to. Um, oh yeah, I mentioned that in the last episode. How it kind of starts at the start of the movie. It like takes a scene from like later on in the movie, and that's like what we start with, and that's how we're kind of introduced to everybody, and then it goes back to the beginning of the story, and right. then you get there. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to just talk about that, but I already talked about that last uh, week. I mean, I didn't really talk about it. I just mentioned it as an example of like a thing that a lot of movies have been doing lately. Right, right. Yeah, um, th- this, the, the, the movie has an interesting structure where like we have a narration sometimes, but the narrator changes from scene to scene, mm. and often within scenes. It'll just change narration from one character to another. Um, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, it's like um, Goodfellas or Casino. Yeah, it actually. I'm trying to think of oh, and All About Eve. All About Eve does that. Yeah, because it starts out with Addison DeWitt, and then you go through um, uh, Celeste Holm, and who else has a voiceover in that? I'm trying to remember. Does Betty Davis have a voiceover in that? I don't. I don't remember. Anyway, yeah. I was kind of skeptical of it at first, actually. I was like, eh, I don't know if it, it almost makes it feel, makes the movie feel a little cheesy, almost. Like the different narrators. Yeah, and just the narration in general. I was just kind of like, I don't know. I wasn't fully on board with it. But as the movie goes on, it kind of just like you for, almost forget about it. You don't even realize that it's really happening. It's interesting when movies like have a narration from one of the characters without any kind of explanation as to who are the, who are they telling this to when are they from what time are they talking about this I just always assume that they're talking to me yeah they are yeah. they're just talking to the audience because it's a movie you shouldn't take it too seriously <laughs> I mean, I feel like most of Billy Wilder's movies have the voiceover narration and yeah, it's an interesting uh, way to get inside character's head. I mean, there's the whole thing um, that they talk about in, uh, or they joke about it in the movie adaptation, where like how McKee, like the script guru or whatever, ha- he always said like, "Oh, no voiceovers. Voiceovers are bad, and it's like lazy script writing." And it's like, well, if that's true, then how come so many of these great films hmm. have voiceovers? Like. 
It is interesting you bring up the whole thing about like showing a scene in the middle from the middle of the story first. I was just um, reading something about, and someone was saying that that is lazy writing because it's kind of a cheap way to get people interested in the story without having like a, an interesting beginning. Like you just kind of were like, you know, oh, here's the exciting part of the story. We'll show that to you first and uh, make you want to get back to that place. But first we got to tell you this, like other stuff that isn't as, that isn't as engaging or whatever. But I feel like it makes you want the exposition more because you already are like, oh, this is interesting. What's going on How did on they here? get into this wanna, wild yeah. situation? <laughs> yeah. Like, see, I don't, I like, I don't think you can say that, like, just point to one thing and be like, oh, that's lazy yeah. screenwriting or that's lazy writing or whatever i think it works if it works it works like and it it, it all depends on if the story calls for it you know and if you like, try to force something like that into or if you try to like tack on a narration it can be really bad like the blade runner situation um there was a nar- there was a uh, narration to that movie that was tacked on at the end i think by like the studio or something they were like no one knows what's going on in this movie we'll just have Harrison Ford record like the lines of everything that he was doing. And it just kind of like cheapens the whole affair because he's like, I walked up to the door and knocked and like, <laughs> you see that? Or, I don't know. I don't think I've actually seen that version of the movie, but that's my impression of what that's like. But, um, it can be done bad for sure, but it can be done good. Like, I don't know. It's weird when people try to like quantify that sort of thing as like, it's either, you know, this thing is always going to be bad if you do it this way. There are no rules. And, like, as far as, like, the order of the events, I mean, look at a film like Pulp Fiction, Mm -hmm. where the film has a narrative that goes in order, but we're not shown it in order. Right. We're shown it in, like, just a perfect way, though, that works so well. Well, Like, if you 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 were to recut Pulp Fiction into chronological order... What would you even be? What would you be left with? It'd be weird. Yeah. Well, chronologically, you'd start with Christopher Walken. Yeah, you start with Christopher Walken and like <laughs> young, like, and that's like a weird first. And you end with um, the end of the Bruce Willis story. Zed's dead. Is that how it ends? I don't even. He says Zed's dead, baby. That's the end, then. And he gets on the motorcycle and he drives away. So you end with Bruce Willis driving away on a motorcycle. You don't yeah. get to start with the great dialogue between Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer. And like, mm-hmm. just, yeah, just, I don't know. Movies, um, they happen in the order that they happen. I don't know. It just, it worked. Yeah. It's like, um, well, there's the, you were, you had mentioned, I think in another show about the Godfather recutting Godfather's part one and two. Oh yeah, the Godfather one, saga. Yeah, and I'm and I'm assuming that it's like you start with the whole backstory of Vito Corleone. The first scene of part two is where you start, or the the funeral, and then there's the shooting when he's a little little boy. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's kind of weird. Also, Citizen Kane starts with the death of Charles Foster Kane, and then goes back, and then goes back several <laughs> times more, and it goes back. It's over sloppy writings. Clearly. <laughs> it's, a, it's cheap. 
clearly Herman Mankiewicz and Orson Welles were Have, lazy screenwriters. They were hacks. <laughs> they, had, they, they had no idea what they were doing. Um, and Joe Mankiewicz, Herman's little brother, who wrote All About Eve, he starts at the end in that film and then goes back through the whole thing and gets and it works his way back to the end and then goes a little beyond. I mean, it's done in so many movies too. Yeah. Great success. But yeah, so I guess that's that. Out of the two, out of Filmina and uh, American Hustle, if it came if it was just those two movies nominated for best picture, which one would you would you pick as as the best picture? American Hustle. Makes sense. It is a better production. And that's what the best picture is, right? Best production? Sometimes. I mean, Annie Hall did beat Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, that is crazy. Bringing it, bring it back to Woody Allen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I enjoyed Philomena more. Are you saying, like, which one do I think is better, or which one do I think would win? Which one... Not do you think would win, but which one do you think oh, okay. should? What would be your personal choice? I'm not sure. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's it's hard to compare yeah. two movies that are so different. But as far as which one I think would win, uh, American would be Hustle, American Hustle. Yeah, that makes sense. If we do it this way each week, we can probably guess. We can probably figure uh-huh. out which movie is going to win. You know, so if you just pick two and you're like, which one do you think will win out of the, if it was just these two? You know, do it like. Um, yeah, Tur- tournament it, style. Yeah. Round one, Philomena versus American Hustle. I'd really like to bet on the Oscars at some point, but nobody ever seems to do that. The one time I ever did, it was I went to a, an Oscar party when I was going to purchase, and it was like people like put in like five bucks each and like wrote down like what they thought would win for different things and. I didn't win, but... Um, well, I mean, we could organize something for this year, I guess. You could do it in each category, too, if you really want to get crazy. Is anybody uh, doing a thing for the Oscars? Or? Like a party? Yeah. It's been a know. while since... I mean, we used to go over to Chris's. I work on Sundays. That's the problem. Uh, like, I work Sunday nights. So, I don't know what, uh, what I'm going to be doing. Hopefully, they'll... I mean, last year I just watched them at my house. That was fun. And I don't even have cable at my house, so <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it. But just call up Dick and Pam, like, hey, can we watch the Oscars here like we used to? They would probably be like, yeah, <laughs> I'll make some beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but neither of us drink it. <laughs> I always feel bad turning down the, the homemade beer because I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't drink beer. I should take a bottle sometime just to have a bottle, but I wouldn't drink it. I try it just you know to be polite, but I'm still just like, eh, it just tastes like that bitter bitter beer that I just I just don't like. Hmm. But anyway, um, so we still have a song to listen to. Oh uh, yeah. Here we are talking about nothing, and we got to listen to that happy song. <laughs> happy song. Okay. It's the happy, happy, joy, joy song. That should be nominated for an Oscar. 
what does it say? Like a fly married a bumblebee. I told you not to shoot, but you didn't believe me. Why didn't you believe me? Is that what it, how it goes? It says that, <laughs> happy, right? Happy, happy, joy, joy. Yeah, happy, happy, joy, joy. Happy. It's been like 20 years. I don't know. We're about to hear the song? Yes. This is by who? This is by Pharrell Williams. Oh, okay. Or is it Pharrell or Pharrell? I think it's Pharrell. Pharrell. Like for real. Pharrell for real. He was N.E.R.D., right? I don't I don't know. They did that song. It was like, you can't be me. I'm a rock star. I'm jamming on the top of a cop car. They, yeah. did, they did it more excited than I'm doing it. And it had like, <laughs> you can't beat me. I'm a rock star. Jamming on top of a cop car. <laughs> I'm gonna go to sleep in my jam jams. But first I gotta jam this jam jam.
That's Happy from Despicable Me 2. I saw that it ends with what sounded like a death rattle. <laughs> I don't I don't think rooms have roofs. I think they have ceilings. It's true. So, unless it's a, unless it's like a one room cabin or something. What does it say? Clap along know. if you feel like a one room cabin in the woods. <laughs> that was that was it was a nice song. I don't know. Danceable. I liked all the clapping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know what to say. <laughs> uh you've seen the movie? Uh no, not all of it. Um we had it playing at Amy's for a long time, so I saw parts of it a lot is but that's uh, not the song that i remember hearing okay did you recognize that song at all no or? i'm guessing it was probably in the end credits i don't like when they do that i don't like when they just a, a film a will just like throw a song in the end credits and then try and get an oscar nomination out of it yeah yeah it's a little it's a little bit cheap and like they are voting on like the quality of the songs not necessarily like how well it's used in the film. Yeah. But I don't know. The song didn't even need to exist if it's just in the end credits. Yeah. Speaking of end credit songs, um, one song that I really liked from this past year that isn't nominated for, for an Oscar in the category is um, from the movie Oblivion with tom cruise there's a song that played in the end credits of that um by a band called 38 special no actually <laughs> but you were kind of close in a weird way m83 oh that's so weird. not 38 83 <laughs> that's odd uh, yeah the, um m83 and it was an original song for the film yeah and it was really good i liked it a lot it had like a very um the whole score in that movie is great and i'm i i should have been i think it should have been nominated because see it, what you really did alone it. but not alone if it hadn't been for you yeah then come on. that could have been there give them some love and the movie is like you know it's it's not that great of a movie it's it's entertaining um is it a sci-fi western it's like, not a. It's not a western. So it's not really. like Oblivion from the nineties. It's like a whole new. It's a whole new Oblivion. Okay. <laughs> um, it is a sci-fi thing. Um, it was actually better than I thought it was going to be because I'm just like, oh, sci-fi movie with Tom Cruise. Like, eh, you know, it's probably not that great. But it was actually like pretty good. But the thing that I really liked about it was the music. Um, it has this really great sort of eighties synth score, and the the song. Um, I can't remember the name of the song even. But uh yeah, it's really great. It's like an eighties kind of vibe to it. Almost reminded me of like I don't know, eighties movies like Never Ending Story or like Tron. Or something the, like that. The music did? Yeah. Or the, oh okay. yeah. Not the not the movie necessarily, but the music kinda gave me those kind of vibes. I haven't seen Tron or Oblivion. Um. <laughs> so yeah, that was uh, that was that song. We'll listen to another one next week. But this has been a beefy one, beefy episode. We talked about a lot. Yeah. Um. 
so we'll spare you the expense of uh, any more. Don't know what movies we're watching next week. No idea, because I I still haven't. We we have to uh, we have to coordinate. You know what you've seen, and what I've seen. So well, so far, the ones that I've seen, aside from the ones we just talked about, are um, Twelve Years a Slave, Nebraska, Nebraska. That's it, I guess. I thought there was another one in there somewhere. I don't know. Well, there's so that if that's four, then there's Gravity, Captain. Oh, okay, Phillips, yeah. Wolf of Wall Street, Her, and. Dallas Buyers Club. Dallas Buyers Club. So, yeah. yeah. So, you've seen four, and I've seen four. But. Okay. And tomorrow, I plan on trying to see Wolf of Wall Street, Dallas Buyers Club, and her. So, it's either going to be some combination of those movies. I keep getting thrown because I keep wanting to count, like, oh, yeah, I also saw Inside Lewin Davis, but that wasn't nominated for some reason. That's another one. If there had been ten nominations... <laughs> Inside Lewin Davis probably would have been up there. I don't know. All right. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>